Coming up on Tech Nation, Dr. Neil Shuvin talks about some assembly required, decoding 4 billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. Do fossils have DNA? And what exactly is in our own DNA? Ever heard of jumping genes? There are plenty of questions which Professor Shubin can answer. Then Marina Zaros tells us about the Atlas of Disappearing Places, our coasts and oceans in the climate crisis. It's an atlas like no other, looking throughout the world and asking, given today's technology, what can be done in the next 30 years? All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, genetics professor and noted researcher Sean Carroll spoke to me about his book, Brave Genius, a scientist, a philosopher, and their daring adventures from the French resistance to the Nobel Prize. Often we try to pigeonhole people by their professions, scientist, accountant, writer, fill in the blank. But human lives are complex, especially if you were living in Europe during World War II. Well, in the late summer of 1939, uh, Hitler invaded Poland and France and Britain were pledged by treaty to come to Poland's aid, but they really didn't. They declared war on Germany, but they did not intervene in combat. And then what began after Poland fell was what's called the phony war, about seven or eight months where the armies were aligned facing each other, but outright war didn't erupt until May 10th of 1940 when Germany invaded Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg, and France. And that's sort of the beginning of World War II in, in Western Europe um, for Britain and other countries as well. And in a short amount of time, to everyone's surprise, especially French people, France collapsed. And really in a matter of days, the outcome was uh, decided. It took another month for surrender. And uh, most a good chunk of northern France was occupied, including Paris, for the next four years until the Allied invasion and the combination of bombing and ground troops and the resistance pushed the Germans out and eventually won the war. No matter what your profession, this caught you by by surprise. We're talking about two Nobel Prizes, ultimately, one in literature, one in physiology, shared by four people who lived through those times. And they were all living in Paris in 1940 when Germany invaded France. Who were they? What were they doing at the time? And how did their lives change? Well, their lives changed remarkably. And I'd even assert that it was in sort of a perverse way. The German invasion propelled them to their path to greatness. So um, for three of them, I think that was certainly true. One was the writer Albert Camus, who was a totally unknown, who was working on a mediocre newspaper in the spring of 1940 and toiling on a novel in his spare time. Another was a zoology graduate student named Jacques Minot, who at 30 years old was a relatively underachieving uh, graduate student who hadn't quite found his direction in research. And a third was uh, Francois Jacob, who was at the time a 19-year-old medical student hoping to become a surgeon. And what happened is in this sudden collapse of France, they all had to sort of find a new path. And for Jacob, he um, fled the country and eventually uh, joined up with the Free French Forces and served as a medic outside of France for several years. 
I'll get back to his story in a second. Uh, Jacques Monod stayed on site in Paris, joined the, the French resistance. And uh, at the same time he completed his doctorate, he started um, really living a double life as both a, a member of the resistance and, and a scientist by day. And Albert Camus had a bit of a journey back and forth between French Algeria and France, but published his first couple books during the war. And really by a matter of attrition of his colleagues in the resistance, wound up becoming the editor of what became the most famous underground resistance newspaper called Combat. And he wrote some of the most stirring and eloquent words uh, anyone's ever written in journalism in the few days of the uh, liberation of Paris in August 1944. And so the transformation for each of these people over the course of four or five years was a matter of either from anonymity to fame or from sort of um, a meandering, not such a great sense of urgency or purpose to a very clear sense of purpose. And in the case of Jacob's he was so badly wounded in Normandy in 1944 that he couldn't pursue a career in surgery, decided to pursue a career in science instead, and wound up winning the Nobel Prize 20 years later. This interview in 2013 with genetics professor Sean Carroll talks about brave genius, a scientist, a philosopher, and their daring adventures from the French resistance to the Nobel Prize. His latest book is The Serengeti Rules, the quest to discover how life works and why it matters. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with University of Chicago professor Dr. Neil Shubin, whom you may remember from his earlier books, Your Inner Fish and the Universe Within. He's here today with some assembly required, decoding four billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. We learn that our very own DNA is a virus graveyard. Then Marina Zaros, a former NOAA program manager and previous lead of clean energy customer engagement for the city and county of San Francisco, will talk about her book, The Atlas of Disappearing Places, Our Coasts and Oceans in the Climate Crisis. And yes, it's an atlas, but an atlas like no other. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Neil Shubin. Well, Neil, welcome back to Tech Nation. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, you've been cracking rocks open and looking for fossils the greater part of your career, I guess we could say your life. Which instance of discovery surprised you from the first crack, so to speak? Yeah, the one that surprised me from the first crack was probably not the one I'm most known for, but it was uh, on a mountaintop in East Greenland in the early 1990s. We were looking for uh, the earliest mammals, and these are tiny things, probably about the jaw a centimeter long. And I was just randomly cracking rock because I had found some scales actually in the rock. I cracked it, and there was a tiny little jaw. Looked at it under my hand lens, and boom, did not did it not have 
the teeth of one of the earliest mammals. So, you know, rocks have the power to surprise, and that uh, really did it for me. During your career, of course, there's been the incredible scientific discovery of DNA, DNA tools, DNA analytics. How did the discovery of DNA and the ability to work with it change how you did your science? Yeah, it was quite amazing. And it happened, it happened kind of early on. I was in graduate school and I was training to become a paleontologist. And I was training to really study the history of life, in particular, great changes, great transformations in the history of life. And so I was learning all these techniques about how to lead expeditions, how to find fossils, you know, how to find fossil intermediates, say, between creatures that live in water and those that walk on land, you know, all that kind of thing. And I remember coming back, from, this is in like the mid late 1980s. I remember coming back from one of my early expeditions as a student, uh, and somebody had piled some molecular biology papers on my um, desk. <laughs> and these papers were showing that people had found DNA that helps build the body of flies, which doesn't sound like much, but then in other papers, they revealed that Human bodies, fish bodies, reptile bodies all have versions of these same things too. And what they're doing is help build their bodies. So it's sort of at that moment, I guess it's like 1987, 1988, that I realized the power of molecular biology. And it's just been that way ever since for the entire field, not just me. I mean, it's just like these techniques have gotten so powerful, so cheap. So, so we're so able to apply them to different kinds of species that it changes the kinds of questions you can ask as an evolutionary biologist. So my toolkit, as well as a lot of other paleontologists of my generation, um, now extends from geology and cracking rocks to studying cells and DNA and how DNA is uh, controlled during development from egg to adult. So fossils, which are cracking rocks to see, do they ever contain DNA? They can, yeah. I mean, certainly, as you get in, as we've discovered, say, in Neanderthals and their close relatives, Denisovans, sort of in the human evolutionary record, in particular for more recent sorts of things, you know, fossils that are on the order of, say, oh, 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 years old. Now, we sort of lose the DNA when we get to things that I work on, say, the earliest fish to walk on land. One of these fossils we discovered actually in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, that's about 375 million years old. Um, and by that point, the DNA is all gone. That being said, what we can do is, you know, we can ask a different kind of question. I don't need fossils to do it. I could say, look at the genes that make the limb of a mouse or a human or a frog. And I can compare them to the genes that build the fin of a fish. And we can ask the question, what's the same and what's different? What's different in the genetic instructions that build our bodies from those that build the bodies of fish and amphibians? And that's a very powerful question. You know, we don't need fossils to do that. And we can begin to see the catalog of genetic changes that make bodies different in evolution. Now, what happens in looking back, you're looking at the entire record of what is living from one point to one point to one point. And you have to make a leap from this point to that point. You always don't have the information in between. What are some of the incorrect leaps that have been made over time? Well, we have, you know, information is all imperfect, you know, whether you're dealing with the present or in the past. And so the question is, how do you build robust hypotheses of how creatures are related to one another and how creatures have changed over time? And there have been all kinds of misleading things and dead ends and so forth. Some of the biggest ones were in trying to reconstruct the tree of life to try to understand, you know, which species are more closely to which others, you know, the family tree. 
um, some of the earliest efforts were actually um, really flawed in many ways because they only relied on one set of data. They might have only relied on fossils or only relied on anatomy, you know, and now that we have the DNA record, that gives us some, you know, and, and that there's, you know, billions of bases in DNA in every, in most creatures, you know, that's a huge library of evolutionary change that we can now leverage to ask those questions. So certainly there've been a lot of missteps and these are missteps, not only because, you know, we were lacking data in the past, but also because the analytic methods didn't really exist to integrate different lines of data, you know, so the, our progress with understanding DNA has gone hand in hand with our progress in the computational methods to study DNA and to compare it among different creatures. You know, so it didn't happen in a vacuum. When you think of the computational power we have now, the sequencing power we have now, the experimental power to manipulate DNA or to move genes among species to test their function, you know, you put all that together and all of a sudden you have this great constellation of approaches that can tell us about the history of life. So there are many false steps as you develop new technologies. That's to be expected, you know. Well, I like how you say that the information is never perfect. You can't, <laughs> it's like there's always more, there's more. And so you still have to make leaps. And you write, we tend to fill the gaps in our knowledge with our own biases, usually some combination of hope, expectation, or fear. Fear? Well, you think about it. What's the unknown to a lot of us? The unknown can be scary. The unknown can be compelling. But, you know, when you think about science, science is a leap into the unknown, right? I don't want to over-dramatize it, but that's what it is. You're going where people haven't been before if you're doing it right. And that's going to be loaded with that unknown. You're going to paint with your preconceived expectations because you're human. <laughs> you know, you're going to have your biases or I'm going to have my biases. I'm going to have, you know, all sorts of expectations that are based on what I've experienced before. But that may not apply to this new unknown. Uh, and the other is we tend to fill it with suspicion, sometimes fear. You think about how people just in general approach the unknown. You know, I feel that more uh, very acutely, not just in science, but, you know, you remember I do a lot of field work and I work up in, you know, the Arctic or I work in Antarctica. And these are places where there's a geographic unknown and where I have unknowns about the weather or the climate or glaciers or polar bears. And, I'm, I've, you know, I spend half my time painting the unknown with fear and, you know, things like that and trying to overcome that. Personal fear at the moment. Yeah, that's kind of, that's pretty visceral. <laughs> like experimental stuff. Um, but that, I mean, but that's a human thing. And we have to, you know, and we're, we encounter this a lot, particularly in the age of social media, where social media is just one giant confirmation bias engine. You know, we have to overcome our confirmation bias and our very human you know, biases, which actually serve us very well in a lot of contexts. It's just they cause us to mix, misfunction in a lot of others. Another quote I love is from uh, Lillian Hellman, the um, uh, nothing starts. What does that quote say? Tell us again. Yeah. So Lillian Hellman, I was just finishing my, my new book, Some Assembly Required, and I was reading an autobiography just randomly of Lillian Hellman, who was a great playwright, right? But she was also, you know, brought up to the House of American uh, Activities Committee. She was a very famous uh, communist. And she had this line in looking at her own life, very hard living life um, woman. Um, she said, nothing, of course, ever begins when you think it does. And I remember reading that quote thinking, wow, that's just not the story of Lillian Hellman's life. That's the story of evolution in the last 4 billion years, you know, because really nothing ever begins when you think it does in evolution. I mean, if you think that, you know, in evolution that lungs arose, you know, as creatures evolved to walk on land or, or feathers arose uh, as creatures evolved to fly, you'd be in really good company. 
uh, but you would be entirely wrong. And we've known that <laughs> for over a century. <laughs> Nothing, I mean, the great inventions in the history of life always precede the revolutions they're associated with. They came about earlier in different contexts, and they really, so much of evolution is repurposing structures that already exist, finding new functions for them. Lungs arose in fish as they lived in water to help them breathe air when the oxygen supply and water um, dropped. Feathers arose in dinosaurs as thermoregulation and, and courtship displays, and then later were used in flight as creatures took to the air. Now, that's the story of invention after invention, whether it's anatomy or genes or, you know, you name it. It's, it's sort of writ large. And this is part of what we're talking about with the famous paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, um, the 2% of a wing problem. Explain that. Yeah. So, you know, you think about it this way. Um, you know, one of Darwin's biggest critics after Darwin published The Origin of Species was this guy, Mavart. And he was really remarkable. He managed to piss everybody off. Um, he... Um, <laughs> <laughs> at the time, he just went after everybody. He went after his parents. He went after authority. He just, just hated authority. He went after the Catholic Church, by the way. He went after everybody. And so, um, but he had a really cogent criticism of Darwin. And that was look, if you think that, you know, uh, flight arose from land living creatures or, uh, or that land living creatures evolved from fish, so many things have to change and sink that it's impossible. No, moreover, that what good is half of a feature, say half of a wing or 2% of a wing? Uh, why, you know, how would it ever evolve? Because the intermediate stages would be useless. And that was a really cogent criticism of Darwin. And Darwin took that very seriously. So, so Darwin wrote his first edition of um, Origin of Species. Uh, but in his sixth, he actually addressed Mavart. And he did it in a way that Stephen Jay Gould later described as the 2% of a wing problem. You know, what good is 2% of the wing? And the way he answered it was two ways. First was that 2% of a wing is better for some functions than 1% of a wing or 0.5% of a wing. It may not be for flight. It may be for, you know, uh, jumping and staying in the air and longer jumps and whatever. But the other was that much of evolution happens by changing the function of features that already exist. That is, that the first creatures to walk on land evolved from fish that already had many of those features that allowed them to walk on land as fish, <laughs> you know? So lungs and, and as we later, my team later showed, arms and fingers and toes and these sorts of things originally arose in fish living in aquatic ecosystems, living in swampy environments, such that when the shift came to walk on land, it didn't really involve too many new structures. It involved using old structures in new ways, you know, using the old to make the new, repurposing, you know, which is what every, you know, which what we do in, in life when we tinker. And that's how um, evolution acts. And this is sort of like Darwin's response to Mavart. And as that was summarized as your question revealed by, by Steve, Steve Gould, um, you know, a century and a half later. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Neil Shubin, a professor of orgasmal... I hate this. I've been practicing... I wish. ...all <laughs> morning. Orgasmal... It's organismal. <laughs> organismal biology and anatomy at the University of Chicago. You likely remember him from his earlier books, Your Inner Fish and the Universe Within. He's here today with Some Assembly Required decoding 4 billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. Okay, so what is this organismal 
Did I even do it right then? Biology. Yeah, got America. it right. Yeah, there's those two. There's two <laughs> letters in that where if you mess them up, it takes you in a whole new direction. Oh <laughs> in yeah. The department oh, that would be yeah. the most popular in every university on the planet. But um, <laughs> but you know, organismal biology and anatomy is studying you know organisms themselves. You know, integrating molecules and cells and development and neural systems to understand how organisms work. So it's um it's the sort of focus of the department. It's pretty simple with a tough name, but it's a lot of fun <laughs> yes, in a cocktail it is. I party. Think it needs a new name. I know how that I know how that works. Now, one would think that becoming a scientist is very prescriptive. You know, do well in science in high school, you know, science fairs in middle school, take it as a major in college, find yourself a nice university, do your PhD work and then maybe a postdoc and perhaps a a professorship. It's all very well laid out. And then there's your colleague Vinnie Lynch. Tell us about Vinnie Lynch. Well, Vinnie was sort of an impressive uh, human. So Vinnie, you know, was a an undistinguished, to put it mildly, student uh, for uh, as as a child, um, and he struggled in school. And like so many of us, myself included, Vinnie uh, was fortunate to have a, a wonderful teacher who saw what made him click, and he saw that what Vinnie really needed was to focus not on the books and the classroom, but to focus on nature, where his passions really truly were. And what happened is that focus of that teacher in elementary school really kindled his interest in natural history uh, and later in evolution. And then Vinnie trained to be a molecular biologist to study evolution, and he carried that passion with him ever since. So he's a, he's a molecular biologist studying DNA and proteins and to some extent cells, um, but he is, at first and foremost, that grown child who loved animals and plants and natural history. And it was really due to a teacher that stimulated that interest, you know, and that, that just really speaks to the importance of great teaching, by the way. It does. It reminds me of my oldest son who uh, got advanced placement in, in high school into science. And uh, so here, here he is with a freshman with all these, these sophomores. And I'm just thinking, you know, what is going on? I'm getting a call from the teacher. It's like the third week of school. And she says, he comes up with more questions than I can even answer if I knew the answer. And I was just like, okay, so he's being disruptive. You know, the parent, you know, she says, we got to nurse this boy through to graduate school. <laughs> it's like, that's a teacher. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, it speaks to the, the importance of teaching and the, speak, the importance of the human beings doing that teaching who really see what makes people click and, and finding the right path for them. I was very fortunate myself to have teachers that fostered curiosity in high school, and I wouldn't be a scientist without that, actually. Now, uh, since we're talking about Vinny, we can go down to deciduous stromal cells, but let's talk about jumping genes. Yeah. So one of the great discoveries uh, in, you know, the past, you know, 75 years about DNA is that it's not just a static, you know, double helix that we read about. What happens is it's roiling with change. That is, there are some pieces of DNA that make copies of themselves and land in other spots of the genome. They call them jumping genes. And there are different ways that it can happen. There are different kinds, different flavors of them. They were, these were um, initially discovered by Barbara McClintock, who wrote a paper decades ago uh, describing these that was so ahead of its time that nobody understood it 
And it got no mention, basically, until people started to discover jumping genes in other species. She was working on corn, and they discovered them in mice, and they found that it's, this is just a very profound part of the genome. She eventually ended up winning the Nobel Prize. But to back to the story about Vinny and the stromal cells, Vinny interested, was interested in the origin of pregnancy. That is, if you think about what makes mammals different from, say, reptiles, most reptiles, some have this, it's pregnancy. That is, we don't, you know, we don't hatch from eggs you know, uh, uh, in nests, uh, we are carried in the womb and there's pregnancy where the, the fetus, uh, lives with uh, inside the mother feeding and getting an immune system and so forth from the, from the mother. Well, do you think about the origin of that? The origin of pregnancy, as you were back to the problem, the 2% of a wing problem or the Mavart problem with uh, Darwin, so many genes are involved in the origin of pregnancy that if you think about that, how many mutations would it take to, for, the, for pregnancy to evolve? It never would happen. You'd need thousands of cha genetic changes to bring about this change. Well, what Vinny showed is in looking at these cells, he found that a lot of the genetic elements that are turned on during certain phases of pregnancy are actually tethered to jumping genes. So that it didn't take thousands of mutations for the origin of, of pregnancy. What Vinny hypothesized was that it maybe was a small handful of them that happened near jumping genes. And then the jumping genes transported these mutations all over the DNA of, our, of our, one of our reptilian ancestors. So that jumping genes are a way to bring new types of information across the genome. So that one or a small number of mutations can actually be amplified into hundreds, if not thousands, by the action of these jumping genes over time. And so that's, that's really profound stuff because what it's showing is that, you know, evolutionary can change can happen very rapidly in some cases, but importantly, we have to change our conception of DNA. It's not this static molecule. It's always opening and closing. Ports of it are jumping around and duplicating. It's roiling with change. And that the way it roils with change actually is a big part of, you know, the origin of new things in evolution. That's the sort of a factory for evolutionary change. Now let's add viruses. Let's. Now, so in this last year and a half, we've been adding viruses. It's been quite the viral year in a lot of ways. And we're so used to thinking about things like SARS-CoV-2, you know, uh, COVID-19, the, the virus that causes um, COVID-19. You know, we're so used to thinking viruses in a very negative way. I'm going to offer a slightly different perspective. And that's based on one of my colleagues at the University of Utah, Jason Shepard. So the viruses, you know, viruses uh, have a lot of abilities here, and some ty some types of viruses, not all, but some types, can actually enter the genome. SARS-CoV-2 does not enter the genome. This is a different kind of virus, RNA virus. But some of these viruses actually can enter the genome. And so it's a funny story, but it's it's one that speaks to how science happens. Jason's a neurobiologist. He doesn't study viruses. Uh, so Jason's interested in memory, right? So he was studying memory, and he was studying a a gene and a protein that are involved in memory in mice. It's called ARC, A-R-C. And he was doing what any good you know, molecular biologist does. He isolated the gene and the protein, studied the protein, how it works in the brain, and so forth. And so he was looking at ARC protein under the microscope, and he like, had to do a double take on it. It, it. it was like it formed these little capsules, microscopic capsules, right? And so he's like, wait a minute. I've seen this before. And he pulled out a microbiology textbook, and he couldn't tell the difference between the little capsules of the ARC protein he saw under his microscope and uh, the capsules formed by uh, HIV 
the virus that causes AIDS. He's like, wait a minute. So he uh, works in a medical school. So he invited some of his virology colleagues over to look under his microscope a couple weeks later, and particularly colleagues who work on HIV. And he said, hey, what's, uh, what, what are you looking at under the microscope? And they said, well, that's HIV. I know that. Anybody knows that. It causes AIDS, right? And he's like, nope, sorry, ARC. It's a memory gene in mice. They're like, what? So they analyzed it in more detail. And it turns out that ARC, the protein made by this gene, um, has elements in it that are viral, that have the signature of a certain type of virus, a retrovirus. I've been speaking with Dr. Neil Shubin, the author of Some Assembly Required, decoding four million years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we'll hear from Marina Zaros about the Atlas of Disappearing Places, our coasts and oceans, and the climate crisis. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with University of Chicago professor Dr. Neil Shubin about some assembly required, decoding four billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. It turns out that ARC, the protein made by this gene, um, has elements in it that are viral, that have the signature of a certain type of virus, a retrovirus. And they traced ARC. Uh, distribution in animals. And they came up with a hypothesis that is sometime in the very distant past, probably about 360 million years ago, based on the comparison they did, there was a virus that entered the body of one of our distant ancestors. It's 
entered the DNA and then was commandeered. Instead of causing infections by some mechanism unknown, it was what we call domesticated. And that instead of you know, causing disease, it was engineered for a new function, put to good uses, if you will, domesticated, right? I um, like it. <laughs> and it turns out that this sort of viral entry for new inventions in the genome is not just in ARC. It's in other proteins like placental proteins. There's one called secession. Um, there are others as well. In fact, the list is growing. So it does appear our relationship with viruses is um, very complex. That is, you know, and, and, you know, we're always at war with them, right? They're, you know, they're trying to get into the body and they basically have one function they, to make more copies of themselves and to turn us into viral factories. Every now and then we win the battle <laughs> and turn one of those uh, <laughs> kinds of particular kinds of viruses into something useful, in this case, ARC or syncytion or these other proteins. So you're not actually just your parents' DNA. You're also their parents behind them. And then all of these commandeered uh, viral invaders over millennia. That's right. And if you look at our genome, it's like like 9% of it is old viruses that, that attacked and got either domesticated or some of them were knocked out as the signature. So our DNA is actually a viral graveyard in many ways, if you, when you look at it. And in fact, most of our DNA is not our genes, right? If you define gene as a section of DNA that codes for proteins, I think that's only 2% of the DNA. The rest of it are some of these jumping genes, they're repetitive sequences, they're even fossilized, if you will, um, uh, viruses uh, sitting in the DNA. And now we get to one of my favorites, palindromes. Yeah, palindromes. Yeah, well, that's a great story, right? I mean, I mean, that's Nobel Prize level stuff, probably multiple Nobel Prize levels. And so CRISPR-Cas, when you talk about that pattern in the genome, I just love how that was discovered because it's a great story about the ecosystem of science, right? When you think about you know, how CRISPR-Cas was discovered, well, it was discovered by people working on salt marshes in Spain. You know, and they were trying to think about, well, how do these microbes adapt to these hypersaline environments and salt marshes? Well, they started to sequence them and they found these crazy, you know, structures in the in the sequence of the of the genome of these palindromes. And then, you know, one thing led to another, and then people realized, well, hey, maybe this uh, this palindromic piece is um, a part of a larger system, and that, in fact, which they discovered, that's a larger system for, you know, bacterial defense. And then others sort of applied this system for bacterial defense to edit genomes. I mean, what a story about science. This happened over several decades, and it just shows you how the power of basic science. And let me just jump in here and say, hey, you guys all know palindromes from the Sunday paper, or... Sunday digital paper these days, you know, it's uh, uh, it, the whatever letters go one way, then go reverse as you continue, or as you used in the book, Hannah, the name Hannah, it's H-A-N-N-A-H. These are literally structures of genes, which are a, stri a, a pattern one way, and then they're followed by a pattern another way. So it's just in reverse. Yeah. And these palindromes were really sort of indicators for, you know, the, the discoveries that ultimately led to discovery of CRISPR-Cas, which was the, you know, the genome editing uh, protein. And the, the CRISPR-Cas genome editing has really opened up a whole new world for us in the evolution piece of part of the world. But also, you know, for, for bio, life sciences and other sciences uh, more broadly, it's, uh, God, you think, gosh, you think about it, you know, the, the earliest paper I saw was 2013, 2012. And, you know, that, that was a game-changing moment for, for many of us in the field that we realized we can not only edit the genome of species, but we can edit the genome of different species, and we could do so relatively rapidly and cheaply. 
um, yeah, that has been just such a, a, a transformative um, moment in biology and other fields. That discovery of palindromes there actually brought me right over to how we uh, we we encrypt uh, certain patterns in digitally because it used to be well we'll just repeat it a few times but then someone wanting to mess with you would just find that repetition and then change it so we found that if we occasionally encrypted it in reverse they would have to analyze all the bits that are out there to to, to find it and so I'm thinking. Did the did the DNA get smart? <laughs> well, look, DNA has been mutating, roiling with change for billions of years. And it's been finding solutions we can never dream of, right, in that space, because it's always mutating and natural selection is acting on it. It's an evolvable system that is going to find just brilliant solutions to environmental or biological problems. And time and again, we can learn so much just from looking at the natural world and, and the evolutionary solutions that have happened over billions of years. And some of them, you know, are just truly um, amazing, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, our human brain would never have come up with them probably in our lifetime. Uh, and so setting up evolvable systems is a great way to explore new space, right? Having variation and selection. People are doing it in lots of different fields. But we have to talk about Vinny's tattoos. You've got to give them that. <laughs> Vinny's tattoos. Vinny's tattoos are, you know, I used to see them at the gym all the time. And it's, you know, it's basically all the animals I've loved before. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, Vinny's tattoos are a record of his work, um, which is a beautiful thing. So many, actually, so many of my colleagues have that. I used to have a graduate student who every species he'd worked on, he'd, uh, he'd get a new tattoo of that species. And, um, and I get, you know, we've discovered this, one of the earliest creatures to walk on land, a fossil known as Tiktaalik rosea. Oh, barely a month goes by where I don't get a, um, somebody emailing me or zapping me on social media with a Tiktaalik tattoo. So go science, go tattoos, go science tattoos. You can't tell a scientist by how they look. They <laughs> just right. turn out to be. <laughs> Neil, always a pleasure. You're always welcome on Tech Nation. And, and thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. My guest today is University of Chicago Professor Neil Shubin. His book is Some Assembly Required, Decoding Four Billion Years of Life from Ancient Fossils to DNA. It's published by Vintage. It's now out in paperback. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Marina Zaros is a former program manager with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She previously led clean energy customer engagement for the city and county of San Francisco. Today, she works on environment and sustainability at the video game platform Unity Technologies. She's here today with her book, co-authored with Christina Conklin, The Atlas of Disappearing Places, Our Coasts and Oceans in the Climate Crisis. Well, Marina, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you for having me, Maura. I'm really excited to be here. Now, with climate change, we hear about rising temperatures, more severe storm systems, rising ocean levels, but that's just the beginning of the impact on humans. Yeah. Um, 
When we think about what we have to lose, it's actually one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I work a lot with communities, especially in the Bay Area, thinking about the fabric of our societies as we know them and where we want to be and the kind of lives that we want to be living and what we want to give to our kids and our grandkids. And a lot of that is at risk of climate change. And when I first started thinking about writing this book, I spoke a lot to the editor um, from the New Press who invited me to do this project. And his thinking was he just had a baby and he said, I can't go anywhere or do anything without thinking about what it's going to be like for my kid. I know that because I also have two children who are a little bit older than his, but I think about that all the time. I think about the way that I lived my life when I was younger and what ways my kids are not going to be living their lives the same way. Now, I will be asking you about some specific places, but let's start with an overview. You wrote some 20 stories, redrew maps of 20 places in the world. Where did you look? How did you choose which ones? How are the stories common and how are they different? So we started this project by looking at the main impacts of, of climate change in our coasts and oceans. So um, changing chemistry is one sort of major bucket of problems that we have. Um, the next is what happens with storm surges and with um, more intense storms. A third bucket is what happens as sea levels rise. And then the fourth is general changes from our warming waters. So once we had those four big you know, buckets of problems. I worked for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration for a long time, looking at a lot of the basic science around this. And those are kind of the, the sort of largely writ problems that we can think of. I think a lot of people don't know what you mean by changes in chemistry. So we're actually changing the very basic chemistry of our oceans right now. There's something called ocean acidification, which is happening. Um, that is a result of the carbon dioxide that we have entering the ocean system. And when it enters that ocean system, it actually interacts with seawater. And it's got a lot of really deleterious impacts on ocean life. One of the most interesting and, and strange studies that I've seen recently was around um, juvenile fish and how they react to more acidic waters. So juvenile fish obviously need to be escaping from larger predators, but higher levels of ocean acidity mean that it actually messes with their olfactory systems. So they get confused. And instead of swimming away from predators, they can actually swim towards them. Obviously, this is not good if you want to have a healthy ecosystem full of juvenile fish, right? If they're all being eaten by a couple of the larger predators. What do you mean by, excuse me, what do you mean by the olfactory system of juvenile fish? Yeah, so juvenile fish actually smell danger. Um, there's a lot of swimming fish, especially. I feel I feel a children's book coming on. <laughs> <laughs> Morty smells danger in the middle of the ocean. I'm there, yeah. Yeah, and the sad thing is that it's not smelling danger right now, and so it winds up swimming towards predators. Um, and then what happens if you have all your juvenile fish eaten in a the system, then you're missing a part, uh, you're missing a big piece of that food web. Um, there's also a lot of impacts that some folks are familiar with, maybe more so the impacts on our shellfish and um, actually anything that makes a shell in the ocean. Those shells are harder to produce when um, the oceans are more acidic. And so what we have is a total erosion of the very basic 
lowest levels of the food system. So something called the sea butterfly. It's a kind of plankton, which is the basis of what small fish eat and then larger fish eat those. And they're having a harder time actually making their shells in acidic waters. Well, let's start with one of the places you write about in the book, in the first part, Changing Chemistry, and that's San Francisco Bay. Tell us this very different story about San Francisco Bay. So the chapter is called San Francisco Bay Seven-Layer Dip because when we started looking at what is in the bay, we realized that there's layers and layers of human history which have actually built up the bay. And it started with the Ohlone Indians and the Native Americans who lived in this area all, all around the Bay Area. They built shell mounds. So these were middens of their some of their trash and some of their refuse and some also of their burial grounds were right at the edge of the bay. Then white European settlers came in and put all kinds of other stuff on top of that at the edge of the bay. They were looking to basically increase the size of the land in the Bay Area. Um, and so just put whatever they had as fill on top of the shoreline areas. When the 49ers came, they dumped their own version uh, into the bays. The chemicals that they used to extract gold from the Sacramento and the San Joaquin rivers wound up flowing into the bay. And those chemicals still live in the mud and the sediment um, all around the bay. If you look now downtown, actually, the area that's in the financial district has been built up as well. It's full of ships and furniture and whatever people had to throw in to sort of fill in that bay. This actually only stopped in the 1960s. So people have been throwing stuff into the bay for you know hundreds of years. Um, San Francisco is now a lot larger because of that. The land and the historical wetland areas, which is what used to ring the bay, have shrunk pretty significantly. What we have now is a system that is really dependent upon um, planners um, ensuring that the system works. So there's a lot of city works. There's a lot of expensive infrastructure at the Bay Edge to keep the water away. One of the biggest concerns is the number of Superfund sites and other toxic areas which have been capped. And capping is when you top over something that you don't want to be spread around in a community. For example, a dump or um, an area where people put toxic refuse. So those are right now capped, which means they can't really get out into the system. But as seawater rises, it erodes some of those caps and plugs, and we may be dealing with all of the couches and mercury and toxics and everything that we've been dumping into that bay for hundreds of years will be kind of coming back and we'll have to deal with it. Now, a good portion of your book is you, you write about a place, but you also draw a picture. What could you draw about San Francisco Bay? San Francisco Bay was a really fun one, actually. Um, my co-author, Christina Conklin, is a artist. And so what we did is we took the best available science that's out there, so hard data that's been geolocated, so it's been put on a map. And then she recreated all of these data sources on top of uh, seaweed. So the maps in there are painted on seaweed. And what she's done is she's transposed the scientific data onto that seaweed. And so the San Francisco Bay map is one which combines information about toxic sites, 
with other information about where those historic wetlands are and is a really amazing study in how we've made so many changes to this uh, once natural area. And you also look forward on the maps, what it will look like in, what is it, 20 years? Yep, 2050. We chose sort of mid-century. And so choosing a time that was um, close enough that we also have all of our future stories have all the technology, all of the solutions in them that exist right now. So those sort of future stories aren't imagining that we invent some new form of robots or something that is not available right now to solve all of our problems. We're not making up new forms of government. We're using what we have around today as a kind of making a point that we can solve the climate crisis. We have what we need. We're really sort of missing the political will. But in terms of the tools, we have them right now. While I'm tempted to ask about New York City next, I've rethought that. And I'm going to ask about the North Atlantic because that includes, that'll impact New York City. It'll impact that whole area. What is entailed in the North Atlantic and what can you tell us about it? So the North Atlantic was an example where we wanted to find a, a place in the world that wasn't necessarily dominated by people. So we have a lot of cities in this book, the Atlas, and then we also have some places that are natural areas that have their own value. Um, the North Atlantic is actually ruled by, um, again, chemistry and what's happening with phytoplankton. Um, every day, the largest migration in the world happens uh, once the sun goes down. All of the critters that live near the bottom of the sea come up uh, a couple of levels in the, in the ocean. So they'll go up several feet, some of them. Some of them come up tens of feet in the ocean. They all migrate upward to be able to feed where the light is best, right? The sun goes down. All you have then is the moon. Everybody in the ocean comes up, and then as the sun comes up in the morning, everybody in the ocean goes back down. It's the largest migration in the world, and it happens in these places where we don't even think about. It's a completely unknown phenomenon to us. And how is that impacted by climate change? There's something called the ocean conveyor belt, which actually drives circulation of the entire ocean systems. So we think about how we have a couple, seven different oceanic basins, but all of that water all over the place is interconnected. And so it comes around from the uh, Antarctic and then it flows up past Africa. There's a couple of different currents, including the Gulf Stream, which bring it north across um, in between Europe and the North Atlantic. And then it circles around um, the uh, Northern Polar Circle and then it drops back down. And so this, um, these currents are driven in part by wind and wind is driven by weather, right? And so as our weather changes, those currents are changing as well. And it's a pretty big area of uncertainty. There's been a lot in the news about how the Atlantic Meridional um, circulation system may stop. That is something which scientists were really worried about. There's been a lot of work in this area to see whether it will stop or slow. The importance of that system is that the last time it was really slow, there was an ice age in Europe. Europe was frozen over. Obviously, that doesn't sound like it would be much fun right now. Um, so there was some concern that there would be a sudden stop in that system. It's unlikely that there will be just a um, there was a movie about this, actually. It was called Day After Tomorrow, and it was a sort of horror action film about a decade ago. And they asked the question, what would happen? Um, and so although we're not about to experience a day after tomorrow scenario where the entire system shuts down, 
what we will experience is continued unpredictable weather like what we've seen. Certainly a place that's taken real beating from storms in recent years, and I don't know what's coming up for it, is San Juan, Puerto Rico. San Juan is a great example of a place where we may not think about what the long-term consequences of climate change would be, um, especially in the United States, but it is something which will have a huge impact on anywhere that's within the um, the belt between 30 north and 30 south, the longitudinal lines, 30 north and 30 south of the equator. This is the area where currently there's a lot of hurricane activity. That's just because of those are, it has the great conditions for hurricanes, right? A hurricane needs warm water and and a certain amount of wind to provide energy for it. And right now that's provided in that belt all around the globe. What we've seen um, in the last couple of weeks is there have been some hurricanes that are outside of that normal belt because water is heating up. And so north and south of that traditional band of where hurricanes arrive, there, there are more hurricanes now there as well because conditions are becoming better for that. And within that band where you can have hurricanes, so places like um, San Juan, Puerto Rico, those hurricanes are getting even more intense. And what they are is um, the the wind is blowing harder and the rain is also coming down faster. We've seen that in a couple of other areas as well. So folks may remember Harvey had some of the heaviest rain. Uh, Hurricane Harvey in Texas had some of the heaviest rain ever. We've seen a couple of extreme downpours this summer as well in the U.S. and in Europe. The flooding in Germany was extremely intense and scientists see a climate change signal in that as well. So a signal is when they can actually look and see that, yes, this is actually getting worse as a result of climate change. So storms are literally getting wetter. What you have in a place like San Juan is storms are getting more intense and you do not have a good system that's been set up to recover. It's not, it hasn't been very resilient. So Puerto Rico is dependent upon the U.S. for a lot of aid and recovery efforts. And what happened after the um, the large hurricane that hit Puerto Rico is it hit a couple of other um, nations as well and a couple of other uh, island nations. Those island nations were able to negotiate with the World Bank on their own behalf. So they got good terms for loans. They were able to secure um, funding and support to do rebuilding and recovery. San Juan uh, required us to intervene, so the United States to intervene, and it wasn't a very high priority on Congress's radar. And so they actually had some of the least favorable recovery terms and some of the highest debt as a result of that hurricane. And they've been, therefore, unable to make the sort of investments in their own infrastructure that would enable them to be more resilient in the face of the next hurricane. Now, you would be mistaken if you thought this book is simply asking about humans making adjustments due to climate change. It's also asking us to reflect on our personal values. And here's a quote from Tamima Anam, which appeared at the top of the, uh, your chapter on Bangladesh. The truth is we're entering an age of migrants and we must adjust our sense of fairness and morality and even our concept of national borders accordingly. What is she talking about, and why did Bangladesh bring that topic up? 
So she's talking about the fact that climate migration, so climate migration is when people are actually on the move because their own land has become uninhabitable. So she's talking about the fact that climate migration is on the rise. The first time some had thought about this was in the context of small island developing states. So the president of Vanuatu has been pretty vocal on this topic. There are small island nations which will literally cease to exist uh, in the future of climate change. As seas rise, that's eating away at the shores, and then ones that are really low-lying atolls will be under completely, potentially by the end of this century. In Bangladesh, what we're talking about is what's happened with the Rohingya, who have been settled onto areas that are also very low-lying. And as the seas rise, these areas where people have been sort of forcibly, aggressively moved will be underwater. Okay, great. You're an environment and sustainability expert. You've spent your entire career there. What are you doing working for a video game company that produced such such games as Pokemon Go. How does this uh, how does this compute as we say? I know. It may not sound like the most logical. I actually started my career in tech and um, I left tech to go and I'm I'm very mission driven. I've always uh, been concerned about climate change and I've always been a real ocean advocate and so after a few years in tech I thought mm, this is not quite the mission-driven work I want to be doing. Um, I then went to grad school and spent a decade or so working on climate change adaptation and mitigation planning. And what I've seen over the past couple of years is that there's a lot of downward pressure on companies right now to do better. When I started thinking about where I wanted to go with climate change planning, I thought about how important it is to bring more of these ideas into the um, sort of mainstream, right? So this book is all about bringing this really complex science uh, to the lives of everyday people in a way that is understandable and accessible and engaging. And video game companies, actually one out of six people in the world plays video games now, and there's a lot of driving of culture that are done by video games now. So if we normalize things like electric vehicles in video games as opposed to gas-powered vehicles, you're making a new generation aware of what's possible. Our game platform is actually also used for a lot of um, AR, which is augmented reality, and VR, which is virtual reality. A lot of applications for large companies who are looking to either augment or replace some sort of existing business practice with one using technology, and there's actually a lot of environmental benefits of doing that. Well, there's a lot in this book, you know, from the Arabian Sea to Shanghai, China, to Pisco, Peru, to to you name it. It's all over here. Uh, it's a, sort of a trip of the world in very interesting places. And and you can open it in any place and, and learn something interesting, uh, both uh, visually as well as from the text that's there. So I hope you come back and see us again. Thank you. I'd love to, Moira. Thanks for having me. My guest today is Marina Saros. That's P-S-A-R-O-S, Saros, with Christina Conklin. She's written The Atlas of Disappearing Places, Our Coasts and Oceans in the Climate Crisis. It's published by The New Press. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gund.
Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.